Well, grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters of Fair Hill Church. It is a great pleasure to be with you today and to bring the word of, God, of the Lord to you. So let's get into it. Today we will be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 through 24. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 through 24. I think it'll be on the slides. Yeah. yeah. And then you can also find it in whatever Bible you were using. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than that anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those under the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Freedom and love. Love and freedom. When I say these two words, what do you think of? What do you feel? Perhaps you feel attention. How can I be free and love others at the same time? Perhaps you think of some of the difficulties that you've faced in navigating social relationships in the past year or two. Negotiating what love for others looks like when you know your rights and your freedoms. Perhaps you think of the love you have for freedom, for your ability to have and exercise your rights. Freedom today can be associated with many things. The right to do with your life and body what you see fit, as some people think. Living an authentic life, being true to oneself, being free from the pressures that would bind you from other people. A Google search pulls up these definitions of freedom. 
Freedom. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Freedom. The absence of subjection to foreign domination or despotic government. Freedom. The state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. Love. An intense feeling of deep affection. Love. A feeling of deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. Love. A great interest and pleasure in something. That is how, if you Google it, you'll see these words defined. And today we'll see that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, takes these words and redefines them for us. And I trust that like all of God's word, this will challenge us, confront us, correct us, and comfort us. And so, so today we will look at Paul's gospel freedom and gospel love that the Spirit might grow us in the same gospel freedom and gospel love. So we'll be looking at this passage through those two points, gospel freedom and gospel love. So let's look at gospel freedom. The book of Corinthians is a letter from Paul, a man named Paul, to the church in a town called Corinth. And that church is messy. There are many divisions. They do not prioritize love. They prioritize their own best interests, their factions, their groups. So we can learn a lot from this letter. We can learn a lot from the two letters that he wrote to them. In chapters 8 through 11, verse 1, Paul takes on, he's taking on the Corinthian understanding of freedom. They get some superficial things right, but they miss the heart of freedom. They understand superficially that freedom is in one sense a freedom of the conscience from unbiblical impositions from other people. The Christian, because of freedom of conscience, has the right to do things that God does not forbid in his word. Also, because the Christian belongs to Christ, they are free from the imposition of others' human traditions over them. We're not bound by human tradition. The problem in the Corinthian church is that some of the Christian believers took this idea and they abused it. They use their freedom without any consideration of how it might affect the believers around them. The main issue was whether they could eat or not food that was offered to idols in the marketplace. They could buy the food, eat it at home. Many understood that biblically, idols are nothing. And so they therefore thought, I could eat them. However, when people who were coming to know Christ saw them do this, their actions led them to stumble, to serve false gods, or fall away from following, following Christ completely. The Christians who made use of their freedom in front of the others and ate missed the point of freedom completely. And the clincher that Paul brings to our definition of gospel freedom is that the gospel binds us to a commitment of love. In the gospel, we are bound to actually freely give up our rights and freedoms for the sake of others. If in asserting our rights and freedoms, we cause another to sin, we are not acting in love for our neighbor, and in the end, 
we are acting, our actions in our freedom become sinful in themselves. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul compares exercising our freedoms and rights that offend another believer's conscience to a stumbling block. Think about this image of a stumbling block. Imagine holding a large stone next to a group of marathoners, and just as they're passing by, you toss it in their path. What a mess. What injury could come from that? Who might perish? Only instead of it being a marathoner and the risk of physical injury, what is at risk is the person who is running their race with Christ, with Jesus, the person who is coming to know Jesus. We can lead someone else to stumble and perish by unlovingly inserting, asserting our own rights and freedoms at their expense. Chapter 8, verses 11 and thir- through 13 says, So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, then Paul turns it on himself, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. But Paul doesn't only turn it on himself there. Our passage today is Paul turning it on himself. And he's showing by his own example what it looks like to give up one's rights for the sake of another. Paul said he had the right to eat whatever he wants, but he gives up that right. To take a wife, but he gives up that right. The right to be paid for his gospel labors, but he gives up that right. And we will see in a more focal way today, his home culture and lifestyle. He gives up for the sake of the gospel. Paul refers to his own rights seven times in 18 verses. Rights, 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 rights. But not to assert them, but to freely give them up for the sake of others. Verse 12, you can see it. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Verse 18, what then is my reward? but that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant or slave to all that I might win more of them. What is the point? Paul refers, prefers to forego his rights and freedoms, even being a servant or slave to all in order that to win people to Christ and to see them grow. What a challenging example that is. My natural tendency is to do the opposite. How about you? Do you primarily see yourself as a servant or as the one that must be served? Do you see yourself as the one that gets inconvenienced out of love for others or the one that is being inconvenienced? In what ways have you been asserting your rights this year at the cost of those around you? In what ways do you need to sacrificially give up your rights in order that another might live 
lots of challenging questions. And they're meant to be. We'll have more thoughts on this later, but please hold on to whatever thought just came into your mind. Don't let it fly away. Don't push it down. Hang on to it. Write it down. Share it with somebody after church. Be accountable. Pray about it before the Lord. Look at what Paul says in verse 15 and 16. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And this is amazing, isn't it? This is amazing. I don't know about you, but these verses are hard for me to say about myself most of the time. If I'm honest, I would say something more like, I would rather die than anyone make me share the gospel. I'm not sure that's for me. Woe is me if I preach the gospel because it's uncomfortable and it is hard, isn't it? But no, that is not Paul's response. He has such joy in the good news of the gospel and such conviction that the world needs it that it would actually be painful for him if he did not share it. It would be painful for him. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So what is motivating Paul to give up these rights? What is motivating Paul to preach the gospel? What could motivate us? And the gospel motivation, so we need to see a motivation for gospel freedom. In a few brief verses that form our passage today, Paul uses the Greek term gospel in verb or noun form nine times. I say Greek because it gets turned into an it sometimes in our English translation. But this is what it sounds like. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Gospel, 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 gospel. The gospel. It's there throughout. The gospel is the focus for Paul. If this term is unfamiliar to you, the gospel means the good news. It is the good news about Jesus the Christ, who he is and what he has done for sinners like you and like me. We are all born in a state of sinfulness and rebellion against God, And if we will be saved from God's wrath for our sin and rebellion against him, it is him that must save us. We cannot save ourselves. So being God himself, Jesus gave up his right to remain in glory, his freedom to do that, and came to earth as a man. He lived a perfect life and a sinless life that you and I could never live, of humiliation and suffering, which culminated in his death for sinners like you and me. He took the wrath of God on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead in victory and vindication for his perfect life because he never sinned. And he ascended into heaven where he will come again to judge the living and the dead, to deliver his own, to usher in the new heavens and new earth, and to put an end to all evil, sin, and death. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Paul is talking about for all who believe it. If you are convicted that you need it, if you are convicted that it is good news not for somebody else but for you, 
and you become and you come to be united to Christ by faith, then this is truly good news for you. It's the best news that can be. And you should be in love with it. So what is it about that gospel that makes Paul willing to freely give up his rights and freedoms for the sake of another? One answer that Paul gives is that the gospel, once it saves us, so compels our heart to live like the gospel that it binds us. We are motivated to gospel freedom because we are bound by the gospel. The gospel saves us, but the gospel binds us in duty. We see in verse 21 that Paul says he is under the law of Christ to live as he lived. In Ephesians 6.20, Paul says that he shares the mystery of the gospel as an ambassador in chains. Because we see that Christ gave up his freedoms and his rights sacrificially, Paul, united to Christ by faith, is under the law of Christ. The gospel has then freed him from living for himself and has bound him to freely live in love for others, for Christ and for others sacrificially. So here we see that when we believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it transforms us. It changes us so that we would live a pattern, a life patterned after Jesus. So contrary to every worldly definition of freedom that we just saw at the beginning of this sermon, Freedom for Paul is about being bound to Christ and living like he lived, being enslaved or a servant to all that they might be slave, that they might be saved. So how about you? Are you this in love with the good news of Jesus? Are you bound to it? Who do you live for? Has the gospel transformed your life in this way? If you do not love in this way, how might going deeper in your understanding of Christ's self-sacrifice propel you to love others sacrificially, propel you to, live in, to lean into the discomfort of preaching the gospel to others? That's gospel freedom. Let's look at gospel love. In giving up his rights and freedoms, Paul also positively loves his neighbor. He describes this for us in verses 19 through 22, where he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Here Paul gives a summary of his practice of gospel love for his neighbor. Gospel love, freedom leads to gospel love. Because Paul is bound in service to Christ and others, he is willing to lean into loving the people around him, and this is how he does it. In verse 20, Paul surprisingly says that he became a Jew to the Jews. Why is this surprising? Because Paul's a Jew. 
So what is he saying here? How does he become a Jew if he is one already? Paul here is threading the needle between a national identity and what it means to be God's people. There were attitudes and practices that were part of being Jewish that were not part of being Christian any longer. They were no longer binding on God's people. The Jewish people of Paul's days also had attitudes and practices that were not commanded in the Bible. They were human cultural tradition. And in this sense, Paul says that he becomes like a Jew, not under the law, he wants to be very clear. However, to reach these people for Jesus, Paul was willing to follow their rules, cultural and social. He immersed himself in their world. He ate as they ate. He met where they met. He submitted to their legal systems. These examples are seen throughout the book of Acts. And one example of this type of love from one of Paul's disciples is Timothy. Buckle up. One day, Paul is traveling with Timothy, who is a Gentile and uncircumcised, and they are approaching a Jewish area to preach the gospel there. Got it? Paul knew Timothy would not be accepted by the Jewish people as an uncircumcised Gentile. So what's the solution? Paul, with Timothy's agreement, I imagine, <laughs> circumcised Timothy. It was not required. He got cut in order to preach the gospel to Jewish people. I don't know about you, but ow! What depths of sacrifice. Can you imagine that? Giving up your very person in order that you might preach the gospel to someone. Would you willingly undergo something like that to preach to people who would not accept you otherwise? There was a tribe that said, I only preach to nine-fingered people. What would you do? I'm not saying cut off your fingers, but the point is there. It's very strong. In verse 21, Paul, to the scandalizing of the same Jewish people, says that he became as one outside the law when he was with the Gentiles. Uh-oh. This also means that he was willing to follow their cultural norms. He ate as they ate. He met where they met, and he underwent their legal systems as well. And you can see that as well in the book of Acts and also in Paul's letters. Carmen and I, in preparation for our work, are learning about the theory of language and culture learning. It's part of what we're bringing to the team. And one term that is crucial for language and culture learners is what is called ego permeability. It's a fancy word. But Paul had it. Ego permeability is defined as the act of constructing for oneself another person's mental state. You get the picture? You become like someone else. You're willing to change who you are. In other words, you enter into another person's world, thinking, feeling, and behavior. And this is what is behind human empathy. To, it is to so deeply put yourself in another's shoes to identify with them that we, to a great degree, feel what they must be feeling. And in this case, it is a cultural shift that Paul is talking about. Paul does not say that he acts like a Jew. Look at the words. 
He does not say, I act like a Jew or I act like a Gentile. He says, I became them. It is the Christian version of method acting, but it is a way of life. And how is this possible? Could it be that Paul has lost all notion of who he is? Did Paul go native? What happened? No, Paul preserved his identity. His most basic identity was preserved because his basic identity was that he is a Christian. A citizenship that is not on this earth. This primary identity as a citizen of heaven allowed him to freely engage and become like the people that he encountered without any threat to who he was. Isn't that amazing? So primary was he saying, I am a Christian. He could become all things to all men. But Paul also gives a parenthetical caution in this whole process of becoming all things to all men. And it is this. Uh, There's a saying that goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And that typically means that you should adjust your morals to the situation that you are in. Right? This is not what Paul is saying. Paul contextualizes the gospel. He, he, he removes all unnecessary obstacles in his communication and cultural habits in order to preach the gospel. However, Paul is unswervingly committed to God's worth, word and its truth. You can see this in verse 20 and 21, where Paul himself gives the parentheses. He says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. What is Paul saying? He's carefully separating what he's doing and what he's not doing. He adjusts himself as much as possible to those that are under the law, but he does not sacrifice the gospel. He adjusts himself to those who are outside of the law as much as possible, but he will not sacrifice God's law or his compulsion to obey God and what God teaches. It's tricky, right? That's what Paul is saying. So, Paul says that he becomes like men as much as possible without sacrificing the gospel or the truth. Close parentheses. Very important. His last line is, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. In these words, Paul leaves no doubt that he has a firm commitment to always live this way. It's not an occasional thing for him. It's not a sometimes. He'll do it always, by all means, that all might be saved. And he becomes it, active. And this is great for Paul, right? You might be thinking, that's awesome, Paul. Good job, right? But what about us? Well, Paul doesn't let you escape. You see, Paul says in verse 24 of our passage, do you not know that all, that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Paul didn't bring you up until now, right? What is he saying? Do you hear it? In this brief illustration, Paul takes what is true of him and he tells you that you must do the same. 
Look at Paul giving up his rights and freely, self-sacrificially loving his neighbor for the sake of the gospel. And you run like he runs. Do it too. Paul's example then is not just for Paul or for missionaries, but is for all Christians to live this way. So how are you doing? How are we doing? But how are you doing first? Are you running with Paul? Do you live with people who have different culture, a different culture and a different language? Do you approach them? Do you lean into them? What about people who have a different educational level? A different maturity level? A different age group? A different socioeconomic status? Another way to gauge whether you are running with Paul is to ask these hard questions. How many non-Christian people have you preached to the gospel, got the gospel to in this last week or month or more generously the last year? Are you running? Do you talk about Jesus with your family, your coworkers, and your non-Christian friends? Do you have non-Christian friends? Many of us Christians isolate ourselves into a Christian subculture and world, and we don't even have non-Christian friends to lean into anymore. To quote Mike Emlett, a counselor from the Christian Education, uh, Counseling Education Foundation, he says, love is inconvenient. It actually has the audacity to ask us to drop what we're doing in order to attend to the needs of others. It presses up against our desire for autonomy, comfort, ease, safety, and control. It punctures our bubble of self-importance and self-protection. It lifts our heads up to look outward at our neighbor instead of down and inward at ourselves. It prods us towards a you before me instead of a me before you attitude. It beckons us to see and live through another's eyes. This is gospel love. So we must all check our hearts here. Where is there a barrier in your heart that keeps you from loving in this way? Why is it there? How can we lean into loving others that are not like us? This is homework. You need to be specific. Do work before the Lord. So what could it look like to lean into loving others that are not like you? It could look like changing the way you dress. It could look like changing your daily schedule. When we were at the church plant, we, had, we shifted our schedule. At the times we wake up, times we go to sleep, times we work. It could mean you learn a different language. It could mean that you change the way that you communicate. So oftentimes when you're working with people who are different from you, they speak differently, even if they speak your same language. It could be that you vary up the way that you eat could be that you find new places to live and to work and to play so that you actually meet these non-Christians. It could be that you shift your socioeconomic situation. And it definitely means that you'll leave your security and comfort. I hope that you can begin to imagine areas in your life where you can learn to lean into this type of love. But this type of audacious love, just like that gospel freedom is 
not only for us as individuals, but it is also for the church. So how are we doing as a church? I want to briefly sketch out foreign missions and home missions. When we look at the pattern of recent evangelical church foreign missions, you can see two big dividers between the colonial mentality and the early modern missionary movement. We move from one to mostly the other, though there's still remnants. The colonialist mentality says this, you make them like us before you preach the gospel to them. Or you question whether they even are human and deserve the gospel. That's rough, right? We moved, thankfully moved from that to we must become like the people and equip and facilitate the work of indigenous leaders, early modern missionary movement. We lean into their culture. We become like them. So the good news is that now we generally accept and support the idea that foreign missionaries must become like the people that they're reaching to learn their language and specifically adapt their lives to the culture. We would, we would find it really strange, I hope, and wrong to hear that a missionary says, uh, you know, we arrived, we remain just the same, and we expect everyone to become like us. Or we stayed in leadership perpetually, we didn't trust that they would ever become leaders. That would be strange, right? So we've made that shift in foreign missions. We are thinking along the lines that Paul is talking about a little bit more. But what about here in the U.S.? What about here? How faithful we have we been? How faithful have we been to the call to cross over to others here? In the U.S., we have also gone from something very unhealthy to greater health, but we have a long way to go. The unhealthy is this: the homogenous principle before the civil rights movement. And what was that? Ethnic groups hostile to each other, unwilling to be together to various degrees, and some groups more hostile towards the others. So church groups were racially and socially divided, and many wanted to stay that way. Post-civil rights movement, there was something a little less hostile normally, though hostility still remains today, with the homogenous church growth principle movement. And what was that? It was that if you want churches to grow, if you want Fair Hill to grow, what you need to do is put yourself in a place where there are only people like you. And because of that common association, you'll grow together. They'll be attracted to you because you're like them. What does that do? Is that leaning into people who are different than you? Churches grew, but they grew all the same. Monocultural. A more recent positive shift has been to a multi-ethnic or multicultural thought of the church. This thought is that you would embrace the reality of globalization and that you would welcome all people from different ethnic groups and different socioeconomic groups, that you are willing to have a mixture of people from different cultures and ethnicities. This is a positive move, but it does not go far enough. In recent years, there's been a move to talk about being a cross-cultural church. 
and I think we're getting closer to the mark, where it can be compared to that early modern missionary movement with an emphasis on every church looking at the people in the area that is around them and that are different from them and imagining how they can reach them for the gospel. Instead of a come approach, which even the multi-ethnic approach is a bit more of a come structure, it is a go structure. You look at the people around you and say, how can we go to them? Not to do some mercy ministry, not to provide some helps, but to really live with them, to really engage them. And that is hard. So can you, Fair Hill Church, as a church, say that you have been making it your ambition to become all things to all men that by all means some might be saved? Not just to serve them, but to truly live among them, to understand their hopes and their fears, their dreams, desires, and ambitions, to lean into eating their food, living the way that they live. Who lives around this church? Can you answer that? This does not mean that any particular church will reach every group in its area. But it is every church's mission to progressively seek to reach the lost around them, where they are, and not expect them to come to you on your terms. To constantly look for those who are different and lean into reaching out to them. If the church does not do this, not only is she not fulfilling her mission, but she is at the risk of losing herself as the neighborhood around her changes. So many churches have had the neighborhoods around them change and the church did not change. The church did not reach out. So practical possible steps for, for the church. Maybe form a cross-cultural committee that would do some research to figure out who's around you. Then maybe recruit some church teams based on that data that would begin to work that work of planning and really engaging in this arduous task of leaning into the culture and the people who are around you. But to do this, it is really hard. This is our calling, but it's hard. To sustain us, once again, we need the gospel. I want to share two more motivations from the gospel from Paul briefly, and then we'll conclude. Paul says in verse 12, we endure anything. And in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And he gives a reason that I might share with them in its blessings. This is a surpri- I think this is a surprising motivation for Paul. The question Paul is clearly answering is this. Paul, how in the world would you put up with doing this? Maybe you ask that about missionaries, about people who really lean hard into reaching people who are different from them. How in the world would you do that? Why would you do that? And his answer is this, that I might share with them in the gospel's blessings. What do you think he means? Does he mean that, does Paul, is Paul saying, I am saved by preaching? I certainly hope not. <laughs> does Paul say that he is saved by doing these works, by loving them in this way? No, most definitely not. It seems that Paul's vision for preaching the gospel does not merely focus on the individual salvation of them or on himself, but the gathering of the people who are saved into the church for growth, maturity, and mutual encouragement. 
if he benefits when he preaches, or sorry, Paul benefits when he preaches, just as I am benefiting right now as I'm preaching to you. If you grow from this sermon, I trust you will also grow in the gospel. And if you grow in the gospel, then you can encourage me. What happens? We share in the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? We share in mutual encouragement. It's the vision of mutual sharing and gospel encouragement and blessing. So as we serve and build each other up, and as more people are saved and join the church, who benefits? We all do. There are a lot of seats that are empty here. There's a lot of benefit missing. That's a motivation. Lastly, Jesus, without a doubt, is our motivation for gospel love. To return to Jesus. Jesus loved his natural enemies. Jesus healed the children of Roman centurions. The Romans oppressed his people. He preached the good news of the kingdom to a Samaritan woman and made her a missionary. The Samaritans were natural enemies of the Jews. He healed a demon-possessed Gentile who lived in a pig-raising village and made him a missionary. This person was anathema, untouchable for the Jewish people. Jesus loved sinners and leaned into them. He was hanging out with prostitutes, thieves, money launderers, extortionists, all the cast-outs and traitors of his own people. He leaned into them. He hung out with them, including he hung with them on the cross. Jesus went to all types and all people exactly where they were, and he comes to us where we are. When you look at our Savior, you see you see your ultimate motivation for giving up your life because he gave up his freedoms and his rights for you. The author of Hebrews said that he was made like his brothers in every way except for sin. The very incarnation tells us that God's son has a root identity in being a culture-crossing missionary. He existed not for himself but for others. Jesus says, I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 says that Jesus freely gave up his rights to divine glory when he came to the earth in the form of a servant. The creator of the universe, a servant. He himself says, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Motivation for gospel love is the gospel that loved you. All these passages were written for us to see Jesus' great love for us, that we would be motivated with gratitude and love for him. Then empowered by the Spirit, united to Christ, they also teach us to love like he does. It says a servant is not greater than his master. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. May God bless us. May God bless you, Fair Hill as you lean into living out your gospel freedom and gospel love as a church, becoming all things to all people that some might be saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this, this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that it gives to us, the, the correction, the encouragement, or the comfort that we receive in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would help us we are needy, we are weak, we are insufficient in ourselves. We need you to live this way. We need 
the transformation of your spirit, applying Jesus' res- the power of his resurrection life to our lives so that we might lean into living as he lived. Help us to not conform our minds to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds by your spirit as you apply this word, not only today, but in the coming days and weeks and years. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.